Welcome to Melly, a conversation on Samaritan history by Jonathan Van Arneman, Kyla Brown, Ralph Cantal, and Steffi Gomes. Come hear the Melly and share the Melly. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Melee, a conversation on Samaritan history. Um, I am Ralph Kintav, and I'm joined with my partners and co-hosts. You guys could go ahead and introduce yourself. Yes, so hello, everyone. Uh, I am Steffi, and I am uh, Jonathan, Ralph, and Carla's co-host, and I also have, on this day, SXM. Hi, everyone. I am Jonathan. Um, I'm also one of the co-hosts of Melee. Um, and I'm super excited to do this topic because I feel like I have a lot of opinions and so I'm excited to get into it. <laughs> Hi everyone, this is Carla. I mean, yeah, co-host with everyone else that you see here on the screen and very excited to get into a topic that hopefully is probably, not hopefully is controversial, that we know is quite controversial. So hopefully you all also react in the comments so that we can interact with you. Okay, great. And so for those of you who may have not have seen, um, just to let you know, our conversation for today will be on a topic, what is our mother tongue? So, you know, oftentimes we've had quite a lengthy discussion here in St. Martin as to what should the language of instruction be, um, you know, whether or not St. Martin English is a language or, you know, we've, I think we're all familiar with people saying, you know, stop talking broken English and those sorts of um, sayings. And so before we get into the discussion, uh, my question for each of you is how many languages do you speak? And when you, and oftentimes when you answer that question, is semantic English listed as a language in your roster? <laughs> I think that's a great question. Um... How many languages do I speak? For me, that's always something that's very difficult to answer because um, I don't know, it's it's hard to, to measure fluency for me in, in languages, especially because it comes and goes. Um, I would say I'm fluent in English, um, well, standard English, um, creolized English of St. Martin, um, and maybe of some other Caribbean islands as well. Um, I would say Spanish, I'm fluent in. Um, I am comfortable in, in Papiamento, um, having grown up around it my whole life. Um, Dutch, Dutch is something, um, Dutch is there. Uh, fluent, no. Uh, comfortable, no, um, but, but it's there. Uh, it's in my last name, so I don't know, there's some kind of relationship there. Um, and then, um, my mom is from St. Lucia and I feel like I have very, a very, uh, small relationship with St. Lucia and Patois. Um, but that is still very foreign to me. Uh, and so I don't know, it's like languages have always kind of been like around here, you know, and not necessarily in here, but like they're, they're around here and I carry them with me. Um, and so I don't know. So uh, for me, uh, I guess I would say I'm fluent in like French, English, uh, Portuguese, and I'm uh, I'm comfortable in Spanish, uh, Creole, like from uh, Guadeloupe, mainly, uh, and uh, I would say comfortable in Saint Martin English because 
well, your question was interesting because I never actually separated uh, my answer for English and my answer for St. Martin English. So uh, that's why I would make, make this distinction. And then from hearing a lot of uh, other languages, I guess I can understand uh, more uh, languages, but these are the languages uh, that I feel uh, comfortable to fluent in. Yeah, like Jonathan said, it's also very complicated. Um, I think for myself, it's always important to know that I always, I think I only really express myself in English. Um, all other languages, it comes down to communication um, and understanding and reading. But when it comes to like actually speaking something to express the way that I want to feel, um, English is probably the only language that I've mastered in a sense to be able to express myself. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I understand Papimantu, Dutch, Spanish, and French. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't necessarily, it depends on the context if I would say that I actually speak those languages, because of course, like every has its function, but if I'm thinking and what I want to say, like even when I speak those languages, it's, I'm, I'm not thinking in those languages. Okay. You know, the thing is, um, I thought about it today um, when I woke up actually, while <laughs> preparing for um, our conversation today, I was like, wait, you know, when someone asks me how many languages do I speak, I don't think I've ever included Samaritan English as a language. And so, I mean, if this is a way in which we speak, we talk or communicate, um, share our ideas, um, language being, of course, one of the biggest identifiers of, you know, a person's nationality and then their, their kin, you know, determining who you're for, basically. Um, why is it that, you know, we don't necessarily consider our mother tongue a language? And so for me, um, you know, I grew up in a Creole home. Both my parents are Haitian, so um, I would say naturally I'm bilingual in terms of English and Creole. Um, but because I know Haitian Creole, uh, my French, it helps me to know French. So thankfully I can read French better than I speak it. Um, they write it as well. And then, of course, because of our education system, there's Dutch. But then, because of our natural relation to each other, Samaritan English. <laughs> and so I just wanted to throw it out there, not just for us, but even for uh, those of you watching and listening to consider, you know, at the end of the day, as we often, um, yeah, speak about the diversity that is in Martin, uh, where you can hear Spanish and Portuguese some Arabic and, you know, languages from all around the world, we still have a language or a mother tongue, which is very significant, which is our Samaritan English. And so to begin, um, basically, you know, one of the things that I wanted to share is the fact that, um, you know, the, the history of Samaritan, of course, is ties into the history of the European conquest of uh, what, history would call, you know, the, the, the new world. And so in that, um, obviously we cannot ex, um, escape the conversation of slavery. And so for a lot of us here on the island and um, throughout the Caribbean, um, we see where our creolization took place in which African languages, um, languages of colonial, uh, I guess you can say powers, and even indigenous languages um, in different, in, in certain islands, um, there was an uh, amalgamation that took place in which basically, you know, uh, the people formed a, a, a tongue in which they can communicate. 
And so originally, of course, we were, when I say we, our ancestors, they were, they were stripped of um, or forbidden for speak, of, of speaking their languages. And of course, we know that that was for a specific reason, mainly being that, you know, uh, colonizers and slavers, they feared that by allowing people groups who share that common um, ability to express themselves, their thoughts, their ideas, their beliefs, et cetera, um, by way of speaking, that it would have a negative, uh, not just a negative, but even a fatal um, effect on their livelihood because it would encourage them to revolt. It would encourage them to, to rebel. And you know that fear did come to pass because uh, we um, see the many uh, rebellions that took place. And so overall, you know, um, language is, 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 is such a very important um, structure uh, element in our human experience because you, know, you often wonder how is it that we came up with a language period? Um, whether it was through, whether it was uses of, of, of physical things, be it stones, paintings, drawings, um, even animals at the end of the day, we all have that ability to um, communicate and express ourselves. And so overall, um, even here on St. Martin um, and in many other Caribbean islands, uh, we see where those African languages were stripped away, but um, thankfully through the, in, uh, I guess I would say the ingenious ability of our ancestors, they found ways in which they would allow, um, even if it's not the exact words and so forth of the language, that the spirit of the language, um, the heart of, um, you know, of their cultures to still be able to pass on through uh, words, through proverbs, through stories. And so um, on that note, I would like to basically allow uh, Jonathan to go ahead and share all that he learned to, you know, about language and mother tongue. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think that is super, super interesting. And so, um, so throughout the Caribbean, you have this existence of, of creolized languages, as, as Steffi said earlier in a conversation that we were having. And so, um, you know, you, you have the ingenious that Ralph was just talking about of, of African people um, taking colonial languages and creolizing them in a way to make them their own. Um, and so, you know, in Jamaica, you have a creolized English that becomes a completely different language of Jamaican Patois and Aruba um, and, and Curacao and Bonaire. You have this creolized um, amalgamation of Portuguese and Spanish and um, uh, uh, Dutch and, um, you know, the different languages that they spoke and that created Papiamento. And so in every single place you, you go in the Caribbean, you have this existence of, of creolized languages. Um, and in St. Martin, it's no different, but St. Martin is a little bit special because St. Martin is part Dutch, part French, and our creolized language is actually English. Um, so the, the language that the people have creolized to make their own is, is English. Um, and so I kind of want to get it, I kind of wanted to get into why, why is that the case? Um, and so I'm going to take you through a, a little bit of um, St. Martin history, so bear with me. Um, but I really want to look at the relationship between language, education, and economy on St. Martin. Um, and so let's go back all the way to the beginning. Um, so that's all the way to 1648. So why was St. Martin colonized in the first place? Um, so St. Martin was not colonized because uh, Holland had an, an, a surplus of people and needed to send people there. So in the case of the UK or, or Great Britain, um, 
a lot of times they had a surplus of population or they, they wanted to get rid of their prisoners or something like that. And so they would just ship these people off to the colonies. But Holland was not like that. And so Holland was really colonizing for the purpose of extraction. So Holland didn't give two craps how many Dutch people were actually on St. Martin, right? On, I'm specifically speaking about the Dutch side. So Holland really didn't care how many people were on St. Martin. They cared about the wealth that was being extracted from St. Martin. So it was not about making the inhabitants of St. Martin Dutch. That was, that was not important to them. It was about taking the things that they were producing, you know? And so that, that is very important because um, it, it shows you um, how the language developed on St. Martin because of the, the, the motivations or the goals of the colonizer. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing that I wanted to point out, that the reason that we were colonized was not for settlement, but for extraction. Um, the second thing, in the beginning, um, St. Martin was, was not owned by the Netherlands. St. Martin was owned by the Dutch West India Company. And so we're not even owned by a country, we're owned by a company. <laughs> and that shows you how much we are a part of a process of production and economy and not really a part of a kingdom. So St. Martin, again, we, we were not meant to be a part of, of, of the empire. We were just meant to supply goods to the empire. And so they're not really trying to educate the people on St. Martin. Um, and so that's the other thing. And so since St. Martin uh, was not owned by a company, I mean, was owned by a company and not a country, uh, it was also more attractive for settlement. And so you have um, colonizers and settlers and enslavers from all over the Caribbean you know, selling their, their, their goods and selling their assets and moving to St. Martin because, um, you know, if a country is, if, if an island is owned by a country, then it's an extension of that country. And so if that country is at war, then that island is also at war. But if an island is owned by a company, then it's kind of sheltered from that. And so it's more of an attractive uh, investment for people who are looking to, to grow crops and extract, right? And so this is kind of the, 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 um, the understanding that St. Martin is operating under. Um, and so you have John Phillips who moved to St. Martin in 1735. And so John Phillips is actually a Scottish man. Um, he was naturalized Dutch. Um, and so he is kind of like, you can see him as the CEO of the Dutch West India Company on St. Martin. Um, and he's also the person that Phillipsburg is named after. And he also owned um, the, what is the name of this plantation that Emilio Wilson is on now? Um, Golden uh, Rock. Rock. Golden yes, Rock. Golden yeah. Rock yeah. So he was he was the owner of of that plantation and all of the enslaved people on it, and so um, he uh, kind of put in a lot of things that were favorable for people to settle on St. Martin. And so the Dutch West India Company had rules. Um, so depending on the amount of, of uh, enslaved people that you had, that would determine the size of the plot you could get. And so close to 200 enslavers moved to St. Martin after having sold their land and homes abroad. And so most of these enslavers that moved to St. Martin are actually British. So they're not Dutch, they're not French, they're actually British. And so to give you some context, some of the enslavers on the island had last names like Richardson, Arundel, London, Glasgow, Abbott, Adams, Alexander, Bailey, Baker, Bell, Benjamin, Benders, Bladen, um, Bryson, Brooks, Brown, Bruni, 
Busby, uh, Butte, Carter, Chance, Chittick, Connor, Daniel, Dublin, Ellis, Fleming, Gibbs, Gums, Halley, Hazel, Hodge, Highs, uh, Hunt, Illich, James, Jacobs, Lake, Martinboro, Mar Marlin. And that's only going up to, to, to M, right? If we continue. <laughs> but do those names sound a little bit familiar to you guys, right? <laughs> Just a little bit familiar. You, you know some of the names, right? You've, you've heard them before, maybe. But that goes to show you the, the, a lot of the descendants of these people on St. Martin are actually descendants of British enslavers. And that goes to show how we are living in the legacy, not of Dutch, well, I mean, we're owned by the Dutch technically, but the enslavers are British. And so you have this, um, this uh, how do you say, um, not, not necessarily a contradiction, but you have British enslavers and the descendants of British enslavers living on Dutch and French territory. Um, but if the, the goal is not to uh, settle, then what is the purpose of teaching the enslaved people the black people on the island, why would you teach them Dutch and French if the enslaver is British, right? The point of the enslaved is to understand the commands of the enslaver. So they're gonna speak the language of the enslaver, which was English. And so from the beginning, from the very, very beginning, we see that most of the enslaved people on the island were not Dutch and, Dutch and French speaking, but they were English speaking, right? So even though we were colonized by the Dutch and the French, we were always speaking English, <laughs> always from, from the jump. There was never a time where Dutch or French was the main language spoken on the island. As a matter of fact, um, in 1821, the language in use was exclusively English for women, children, and personnel, and only the men spoke French or Dutch. The only European uh, people who were on the island were government officials, teachers, and religious leaders. That's it. Nobody else was of, of, of European, um, Dutch or French descent on the island. Um, there were a couple French enslavers and there were even fewer Dutch enslavers, all right? So this is the backdrop of how St. Martin was founded, all right? So let's keep that in mind as we're moving forward. So. Now we move forward and we get to the first establishment of a school in St. Martin. And this happened in 1851. And I guess you guys can guess what that school is on Dutch St. Martin. That is Orania School, right? That is in Phillipsburg on Front Street. So this is established in 1851. Mind you, St. Martin was, was colonized in 1648. The first school is 18. 51, all right, that is hundreds of years later. So there was no priority for education or language learning or anything like that on the island. That just was not something that they were interested in doing, right? And so um, for comparison, the first school in Jamaica was 1729. So that's over a hundred years prior. So Jamaica was a place that was for settlement and for, for colonists to go and live there and establish and, you know, etc. So it's like, you're not having the same case in St. Martin as you have in Jamaica, right? Or in other Caribbean islands. Um, and so that's really important to take into consideration. Um, and so of course, after, after slavery, then um, a lot of people left. You have this whole period of subsistence farming and things like that on St. Martin. So people are fishing, but they're just fishing for subsistence. No one is really um, uh, working in the in the salt salt mine uh, salt mines or um, the salt pond or no one is really doing any of those things and so no one's going to school because why would you go to school so 
really there's this whole period of every there's just like a lot of people who left St. Martin to go work in the oil refineries in Curacao and um, Aruba and Cuba um, and um, St. Martin is kind of just like this this place that's kind of just like oh like if you're living here you're kind of just fending for yourself so you're not really going to be um, indoctrinated with language like that's again so it's not until way later that uh, when we have the tourism boom that education actually starts to pick up on the island and again it's been English this whole time and so there wasn't really a push for the Dutch language until way way later so the establishment of Sundial which was not even a regular school. It was a, a, a school for home economics. So it was a trade school similar to how it is now. So that happens in 1966. And then MPC, which is the, the first um, uh, Dutch college on the island that happens in 1976. That is recent history. <laughs> that is recent history. There was no Dutch high school on the island prior to 1976. So who's learning Dutch? Where? <laughs> right? And so the reason I bring up all of these things is because I feel like because we were colonized by the Dutch, we sometimes feel as if it is our fault that we don't speak Dutch. It's like a, it's like a failure of our own, not realizing that the way that we were colonized and the reason we were colonized, we were never meant to learn Dutch. So now this whole thing of us needing to speak Dutch because we have a Dutch passport, like look back at history, right? look back at how we got to where we are right now in the first place. Um, and so I kind of wanted to touch a little bit on um, just like, a, you know, this, this whole conversation that we, we put in the polls and then, then I'll, um, I'll pass it on to, to Steffi. But we put out a poll saying, you know, should people be fluent in, in Dutch and French in order to serve in the Dutch side government or to serve in the French side government? Um, and most people said yes, you know, like most people said, yeah, like you should be fluent in Dutch because, you know, you need to, it's, it's the law of the land, it's the official language, and so you should be fluent in it. But then you have this, this um, it's, um, it's a contradiction. Why? Because majority of the population for all of St. Martin's history are English-speaking people. And so what you're saying is the people in government who should be representing the population of St. Martin, they need to be vastly different from the majority of the people on St. Martin, right? So you're saying that the people in government, they cannot be like, they can't be regular St. Martin people because regular St. Martin people don't speak Dutch. They don't speak, you know? So it's like, they, they cannot be regular St. Martin people. They have to be able to be fluent in Dutch. They have to be able to, to understand these laws in Dutch. And so I feel like that is kind of the violence of colonialism because you're being forced to operate in a system that was not really made for your advancement it was not really put into place for 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 you <laughs> and now you have to operate within it because that's the law right like you're dutch and so you need to operate within a dutch system um but that's that's not why you were colonized so I, i'll pass it on from there and maybe we can come back to this discussion at the end okay so i think i'm gonna continue um i just wanted to go back uh a few uh, centuries ago, so go back to the 18th century that you also mentioned. And uh, basically what you uh, said for the Dutch side is absolutely valid for the French side. So in 1765, uh, the commander of Saint Martin is de Coudrel, and uh, he offers land concessions to anyone uh, who would uh, develop cane or cotton uh, crops and uh, without any consideration of nationality nor religion. 
And just like you mentioned for the Dutch side, this uh, induces an, uh, an influx in British colonizers. And uh, of course, coming with their enslaved people, uh, because we have to keep in mind that St. Martin is surrounded, well, let's say, yes, surrounded or close to Anguilla and St. Kitts, uh, where there are uh, British, uh, which are British settlements. So we have the same thing. And uh, tracing back to 1775, uh, it was uh, found that there were like 30 French families while there were uh, 50 English families, well, British families. So there you already see this trend of um, British people uh, occupying the island. And also uh, given that they were the majority, uh, well, any other nationality would also speak uh, English as a means to communicate. Uh, on the island. So I feel like not only um, the, the enslaved people had to uh, adopt, adopt their form of English to, um, to be understood and to communicate, but also the other um, nationalities like European uh, that are not British had to adapt to English. Uh, so that's that. Uh, and I just wanted also to add that uh, the like, uh, between 1648 to uh, 1816, I think, the, the island switched hands a lot. And uh, among these hands, there were the British hands. Uh, so that also has an influence on our, our language and how it is uh, it has been formed. So uh, that's what I'm going to keep myself at for now. Hi, everyone. So I'm going to talk a little bit about or go more into some sort of depth of what there is regarding uh, English and language of instruction or English and Dutch and language of instruction on the south side of the island. And much of this um, uh, that I'm about to say comes from a study that was done by Milton George that was published in 2013. And it's titled A Story of the Coming of Age of Education in St. Martin. I don't know if any of you have uh, come across it, but um, it basically details um, the history of education uh, within St. Martin, but also like within the broader context of uh, the Kingdom of the Netherlands um, and, you know, education uh, during times of slavery as well, who it was meant for. Um, and it's important, I think, in understanding the legacies of legislation to understand that um, education laws were also being fleshed out for the first time for the Netherlands Antilles with the intention of educating a very different population um, as Jonathan uh, already mentioned, than we are thinking of, right? So it wasn't about educating the enslaved, it was about educating the children of the enslavers, right? And uh, Dutch colonial officials, their children, uh, et cetera. So it was much more uh, about legislation developing in these lights and later becoming more inclusive, right? Um, so, the topic of language uh, and what education um, language should be, what language education should be in is like a very long debate. But really in the 1900s, uh, Milton George writes about kind of like this uh, discussion of language happening within the Netherlands because there's also an education conference that happens that discusses like what, like how to, uh, what languages people should learn in because 
uh, taking into consideration, they're not just talking about, you know, the islands, they're also talking about Suriname and at that point, Indonesia, because this is the early 1900s. Um, so uh, in his study, he talks about a national ordinance of 1907. Um, and in 1918, there's an uh, amendment that's made to Article 43 that states, instruction is given insofar as it is possible in the Dutch language. Insofar as it is possible in the Dutch language. Uh, and during at least 18 hours per week of which maximum of two hours is allotted to the subject of useful crafts. And from this, a lot of people obviously ran with the idea that education should just be in Dutch and only Dutch. Um, but the minister and at that time of course there was like also an inspector of education because there was also a huge competition uh or understanding um of trying to regulate education right most people were being homeschooled there were some private schools and education was largely within the antilles then starting to move towards public education so how is this uh, regulated and so of course from then we already have inspectors and the inspector would measure how well the students are doing by their command of the Dutch language, still, even with this, um, these conferences going on in The Hague. But at the same time, we have a minister of colonies whose name was uh, Thomas Sebastian Plater, I'm, I'm probably butchering that last name. And uh, his opinion was that basically the local language should be used um, whenever it can be. And he actually interpreted Article 43 of insofar as it is possible to say that that makes room for local languages to be used uh, within education. And so it's important to note that while they're having these discussions about legislation and education, nothing is ever really finalized or put in fine print uh, about what should happen then with language of instruction. Um, and so there's one quote, bear with me, I know I got into like the historical possibly uh, dull part but it's to understand like what exactly like uh, underpins the discussion going on now and to know that you know this is not just a discussion that we're having now it's one that's been going on for this entire way into the last century uh, and so mr plato says i admit to the representatives that the education provided in the school should be social education that it does not matter to teach children a certain amount of knowledge about a language that later on will remain a foreign language to them. I agree with the representatives that the inhabitants of the Windward Islands, us, actually speak English and the lower classes whose children fill the schools could miss a great deal of instruction given in Dutch. But like I said, this issue was never really resolved. So he stated this opinion, but it never came to some sort of legislation saying like in black and white, um, we can mainly see legislation as like loopholes, right? Like allowing for many possibilities. Um, and so as Jonathan already mentioned, then our oldest school on the island, uh, on the south side is then Arani School, which was founded in 19, or 1851. Um, and according to the research done by Milton George, uh, we already see that there's already this keen interest in English and a search for English teaching materials. Um, and this also allowed for more cross-border, um, uh, uh, not relationships, but interactions to happen because there were a lot of English-speaking families on the French side that didn't necessarily want to send their kids uh, to the French system. And so that's when you start seeing also a lot of uh, families that live on the northern side sending their kids to school 
on the southern side because of language of instruction being in English. Um, and but then we start to see that you know public schools uh, start to develop in two different directions, and you see that in a lot of cases, some schools may have started with two tracks. So they would offer an English speaking track and a Dutch speaking track. And later those schools would eventually then split. Um, and so you have then what comes uh, with schools of uh, English instruction being schools like Aranya School, Ruby Labega Primary School and the Marie Genevieve de Weaver School. And you have Dutch language primary schools, of course, uh, being the Charles, Charles Leopold Bell School and the Martin Luther King Jr. School. Um, and then uh, he starts to say, you know, so those are public schools, but St. Martin then also has uh, Catholic schools and non-Christian, uh, non-Catholic Christian schools and private schools. Uh, and when it comes to Catholic schools, you also see these two streams uh, that Dutch language was used, which in the beginning, of course, is the fact that Catholic schools on the island um, were brought by nuns who were from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, who like largely pushed for education. So you see that Catholic schools also don't necessarily stick to one language. But when it comes to non-Catholic Christian schools, you see that from the get-go, they all speak English uh, and they all choose for English as language of instruction. And so far, the private schools have also uh, gone along this path of having English as the primary language. And so uh, in discussing this, and as we were talking amongst each other, uh, we were discussing about the, uh, the fact that, or we we're talking about the fact that numerous studies have shown obviously the benefits of teaching and educating students in their mother tongue language. And this goes for like across the region. And there's a lot of research that's been done, for example, in Haiti, um, where there was at first like uh, much more schools uh, in that operated in Haitian Creole. And then there was a turn in the 70s, I believe towards or earlier than eight, sometime mid 1900s towards uh, French as uh, the uh, strict language for instruction. And now we see again that people are starting to realize the ways in which this holds back a local population that, is, that has a mother tongue and is not versed in this language of instruction. Uh, and you also have the case, for example, with Aruba, which has implemented Papimentu within the school system through, the govern, uh, through public schools and the government. Um, and in discussing this, we were also, or I was thinking a lot about the arguments that we talk about that people say, you know, like, um, and it's that basically say, you know, that schools shouldn't be in Creole languages because uh, they don't see the significance or the level of these Creole languages, or um, we don't realize the racist and classist ideologies that help to substantiate views against Creole languages, right? And I think that that's something that all of us have to unearth and realize like when we are uh, talking about Creole languages and we're talking down on them and realizing that a lot of times uh, it is kind of embedded uh, ideas that we already see from early discussions on education that these Creole languages are the languages of the enslaved, the languages of the poor. Uh, and so they were frowned down upon. And we don't realize that by continuing to substantiate these arguments, the power that we're giving to uh, certain languages. And the question is, who do we want to give uh, the power to in terms of uh, empowering through language? Um, and so I'm hoping that we can ask more questions about this later, about how language is tied to status and power. Um, but I leave you with a question uh, that 
if St. Martin English is our mother tongue, and I believe that Ralph also touched on this when he asked his question earlier, it's do we see that reflected in our educational system? And are English schools seen as educating in our mother tongue? Or are they just the closest option to our mother tongue? And do you think that the differences between English and St. Martin English hold students back in any way? And in uh, building on this discussion and thinking about these questions, um, of course, like I'll drop the links, but there are very interesting work done by a Haitian scholar called Michel de Kraft. And he really talks about um, the, the status of Creole languages and their use in education. Uh, and I'll drop the links um, in the Facebook group about YouTube videos and uh, resources that people can go to to really uh, challenge the ways in which we are attaching status to language because that is a huge part of the weight that we give to language and education. Very Thank well that, said. <laughs> yeah, uh, it made me think of something I wrote in my notes uh, that was uh, that there is no consensus on how close of or far uh, our language is to English. And so some consider that, uh, like we've been talking about St. Martin English, just saying that uh, our tongue is a sub uh, is a subgenre of, of English, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so even in the name, you know, we're already saying that it's it's a kind of English. So, so there's this opinion, let's say, that is quite a majority. So let's say that the neutral uh, version would be saying that it's St. Martin English. And then you have the downgrading version saying that it's broken English, you know? And then you have people who would go to say that it's an autonomous language. It's not a form of, of English, but an autonomous language and uh, proposed name as uh, the St. Martinese. So I asked the question as well and uh, I got this name. So I thought I should, uh, I should mention it. And uh, I think I heard in French Le Saint-Martinois. So these are things to um, investigate, I think. Um, so basically I wanted to talk uh, on the relation of, uh, the, the, of Saint-Martin Saint and English in the French context. So uh, as we, uh, well, independently from my, my own uh, like opinions and points of view, uh, Saint-Martin is part of France and uh, of the French Republic. And so the French uh, constitution states from article two that the language of the Republic is French. So that is crystal clear, there's no and, no nothing. <laughs> and then, so I said article two, and then article 75 of the constitution it is written that uh, the, the, region, the regional languages are part of the patrimony of France. So the regional languages, uh, we're talking about uh, the language uh, that is taught in Corsica, uh, in uh, the Basque country. I don't know if this is how you say it uh, in English, but like between, uh, between France and, and Spain, uh, and also in the region of Bretagne, so Brittany, where they also have a French um, uh, a specific uh, regional language. Then you have other uh, regional languages and you can also uh, include uh, the Tahitian uh, and uh, like Creole from Martinique uh, and Guadeloupe. If you broaden it to the overseas uh, territories, you also have uh, um, on the 
eastern part of France, so close to Germany. You have uh, the region that is called Alsace, which also has uh, a local, uh, a regional language, and you also have others like Catalan and Occitan. Uh, so you've noticed that I haven't mentioned anything about uh, Saint Martin, uh, well, well, our tongue, because there is no mention of it, uh, which could be logical because it hasn't been formalized. We have no proper like way of establishing it and formalizing it. So maybe that could be a reason. But in a more general way, uh, we also have this thing of uh, France considering that um, English, uh, well, our tongue is English, so it's a foreign language, and uh, French Jacobinism, so meaning that the French state is like, okay, I'm a centralized state, uh, and then there are regions, but everything is centralized, and I command from the center, and the, the, the others must do as I say. So this, this is Jacobinism, and they, they're like, okay, we're not going to allow any like foreign language. This is France, so you're gonna speak French, basically. Um, and then you have, uh, you have the European Charter for Regional or Minority Languages. So that is at the European Union level. And uh, funnily enough, it wasn't ratified by the French Republic because uh, the, the, well, it's in opposition with the constitution. It, it, it violates the, the principles of the constitution. For instance, article two of the constitution, the, the language of the Republic is French. So you already see that from the get-go, if you don't really apply pressure, you're not gonna make any step forward uh, concerning um, education in any form well, of other language. So we mentioned two things. We mentioned uh, English in its standardized ver version, and we mentioned Samaritan English. Um, so now I'm going to talk about uh, English in its formal version when I talk about English uh, in education, because as I said before, the, the Samaritan form is not anywhere near uh, the, co the conversation. So I just wanted to mention that uh, um, a few teachers um, who noticed uh, how complex it was for a child to adapt to the French system, uh, decided that they should do something so that uh, a teenager that has spent his entire, his or her entire school, um, his entire curriculum in a French uh, system could learn the language basically, because what they noticed is that by the end of the curriculum, certain um, um, students were still not fluent in French. And that was because from the get-go, they were entering a school uh, system um, that were not in anywhere close to their, the, the language they, they, they speak at home. So you have this total disconnect of, for instance, uh, being all the time in an environment where you speak Chinese and then you go uh, in school and uh, the school is in Spanish. So you're like, okay, what is happening, you know? So that's, uh, that was the case. And so uh, just to cite a few names, you have people like uh, Etina Mussington, Lenny Mussington, uh, Ghislaine Rogers, and also Jocelyn Arnell and Evelyn, Evelyn Fleming, who uh, were uh, sure of, uh, of the fact that you, we, we, we have to include uh, bilingualism uh, uh, in our schools. And also you have teachers like Dominique Luizzi who did uh, a thesis on the same subject, the fact that bilingualism uh, could be a, a solution to better the level of education of, uh, of St. Martin students, basically. 
So um, what we're doing now is that, um, so what was done by the collectivity is that they created a commission uh, to, uh, well, for the establishment of bilingualism in the school. And the objective would be that all the students uh, would be bilingual, so French and English, uh, by the end of their curriculum. Uh, so um, there was never a question of making sure that the education was completely in English. It was making sure that there was bilingualism because um, English is seen as a tool to better the education also in French. So it goes hand in hand, uh, which is like logical in the French context where there's no, there's no other language of uh, education or anything. And also, um, like uh, the the like we 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 started the conversation stating how many languages we speak, and so the fact of being able to of, of being a polyglot is something that is valorized in society. So um, what uh, the French side is pushing for is bilingualism. So uh, from the numbers of 2019 that I found in an article, there were 574 students that were in bilingual uh, classes. Uh, and I, I forgot the, the, the number of, uh, of students uh, in general, but that is a, a, a small uh, number. Well, it doesn't represent a lot of a, a, a large group. However, the objective is to, well, raise this number year after year. Um, also, um, I found an, an interesting number, which was that on the, trio, on the 307 um, uh, teachers on the island, only eight were from St. Martin. And, <laughs> and so you have this situation of, um, of teachers uh, from the very, uh, uh, like from preschool, let's say, or who are not very aware of the, um, the context of St. Martin, let's say, and that might uh, degrade uh, the competencies of the child um, in English. But the objective with the, bi the bilingual uh, classes would be that you have uh, well teachers that are trained for that purpose and that know that they have to, to, um, to welcome uh, the child with his, um, well, with his, his competencies in his uh, maternal language and uh, help him to have the same uh, in French, basically. So they want to put, uh, um, they wanted to put, um, a, um, how do you say that? A diploma that would certify you, uh, that, that would say that you are competent for this type of classes. They wanted to put one locally so that the teachers that are not, um, um, how to say, they, they are not, uh, so you have two statuses, you can be, uh, a titulaire, which means that you have uh, completed the, 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 the correct uh, diploma to be uh, 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 education civil servant, or you can just have a contract uh, as an educator. And that means that if there's a person who has the, the right diploma that comes, uh, your, your place goes to him. So actually there are a lot of people in St. Martin or St. Martinus who have the second type of, of contract. So they're, they, they, they're not as legitimate, let's say, uh, for the, the national education system. And so there was this idea of putting a local uh, contest, oh, well, uh, uh, a diploma for these people so that they could get the first type of contract I was talking about previously. 
and uh, also opening uh, the bilingual uh, classes to uh, teachers that would, uh, to a minimum, have a bachelor degree in English. So that you could ensure that um, the person knows, uh, is aware of the public uh, they're, they're talking about, basically. Uh, so that is what I wanted to uh, mention. And also, uh, I just wanted to uh, say again that I am strictly talking about standard English, standardized English, and the conversation on um, Samatan English, Samatan Tongue, however you want to call it, um, is not a part of the conversation uh, as yet. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much for that, Stephanie. I would just like to mention as well, you know, to those of you who are on the stream that, you know, feel free. Uh, to ask any questions. I see uh, some of you sharing your opinions and, and thoughts. And so we appreciate the engagement. And so based on something all of you said, one of the things that came to mind was definitely how language is used as a means of establishing a sort of elitism, you know, a separation between um, peoples just because, well, um, you know, if, I, if I'm more eloquent or in Dutch or French, um, that means that I am I am afforded better opportunities. You know, I am the I'm more so I'm deserving rather than afforded those opportunities because you know I stand out of you know out of the flock, whatever. But nonetheless, uh, something I wrote that just came to mind was you know language is a tool of of oppression or empowerment based on the sharing or withholding of information, and we see that as far as the media is concerned in terms of um, orig originally when newspapers and so forth were launched, it was something that was more so for the elite. And so even the, the writing styles of, of newspapers were different compared to today, where, you know, most journalism schools would tell you, you know, to, to keep your, your writing very conversational because you're trying to, you know, because now opposed to before, you're trying to appeal to everybody and just not, you know, the elites of society. And so it is important for us to, to preserve you know, um, our language, our way, of, our way of speaking, because again, that is part of our identity. And we see where, um, in addition to your identity, language also determines um, your, like, like basically your belongingness to a, a, a certain space or territory. And even on St. Martin, we see that particularly on the Northern side where, you know, you can speak to somebody from French Quarter, you speak to somebody from Margaret, speak to somebody from Grand Cas, and you had a, a slightly different <laughs> variation of semantic English. Um, so even you know even the specific space that you're in or that you grew up in, um, you know um, your language has its its relation there. And so overall, um, I guess my conclusion is, is uh, definitely where preservation is is concerned, and the need for us to um, yeah preserve what is ours. And so. Efforts, you know, I see different um, pages that, uh, for example, uh, say, let's say, says, I saw a page recently, say, Martin Talk or something like that, some Martin Slangs, which promote, you know, the way, the things that we say, our expression. And one of the things I have learned to cherish personally is proverbs, you know, when we, when we say things like, who don't hear this field, because those simple um, sayings, they have, they are packed with so much wisdom. It's so much in so little, if, if you know. Um, and so it, it's for us to pass those on. And, and I think one of the challenges that we do face, of course, I can't um, 
um, we don't mention it is the fact that again, St. Martin um, is diverse. It's, you know, um, as Steffi mentioned, I was blown away. I mean, how is it that if we have, let's say over 300 teachers in the system and less than a dozen was from St. Martin, you know? And so for example, and, and this is in no way um, a shot to, you know, teachers from other countries, but how do we expect St. Martin children to learn you know, Samantan language if the instructors are not from Samantan, you know? Um, many, uh, many, uh, for example, myself that went to Samantan Academy, um, we could have counted on, our, on one hand, I think. Well, well we could have counted nonetheless on, on our hands how many teachers we had from Samantan opposed to teachers that were maybe from, let's say, Guyana or Jamaica, one or two maybe from St. Kitts or so forth. And so um, I think ways in which we can play a, a role in, in preserving our languages, of course, through um, books. Um, there are several books. I have one with me that I always recommend. It's a collection of stories um, from St. Martin in the 50s and 60s. It's called For a Stick of Fire. Um, there's this St. Martin talk book, um, book of, I mean, I think, we do have a Samaritan dictionary, if I'm not mistaken, it's a Samaritan English dictionary, or maybe we need an upgraded version of that. <laughs> um, but I think one of the, the, the I say the champions of Samaritan English though, of our mother tongue is radio, which is why, you know, um, whether it's you're listening to PJD2, SOS, you know, Laser, Pearl, whichever station, you know, that that is, that is uh, the carrier of you know our our tongue because that's how we communicate with each other. Where we hear you know the and latest, songs. yeah, yes, and music too, and to to extend because sometimes I notice some Samaritan artists have a different accent. I don't know where it comes from, but nonetheless, I, I thought at this point Ralph, you would go on about calypso. We talk about calypso so much. <laughs> oh man, thank you for bringing it up. I mean, y'all, so. Everyone watching, you know, I have been championing an episode on Calypso, which is like so dear to my heart. <laughs> so thank you, Carla. But nonetheless, you know, plays. When last have we attended a play, you know, playwrights? Um, and so digital content. So we have multiple ways of preserving our, our mother tongue. And we must vigorously and actively, you know, be engaged in ensuring that it is passed on, it is shared. And so... That is my mic drop. <laughs> I mean, and that's I a good like... mic drop, you know. <laughs> well, um, I, I definitely uh, agree with you. And let's say that I'm looking forward to um, seeing more material in Samat and English, um, more conversations uh, about it as well, uh, because the, the, the road is long. And, you know, um, I had a, there, there was a comment uh, on, on this ESXM um, page when I started a conversation on, on our mother tongue, basically. And this comment was about um, how on the French side, the Samaritan English, English was more like raw or, or less um, Americanized, let's say. And I found this interesting because I had some sense of that, that either uh, people from the French side English was more um, specific, um, but also that older people had a stronger uh, Samaritan uh, English than, than ours. And so I'm wondering if 
um, like the fact that we are becoming bilingual uh, in standardized English and so accustomed to it doesn't water down um, our Samaritan tongue, given that uh, to counter that, we don't have any uh, material in Samaritan English. Yeah, I think that's definitely valid. Um, and that's something I, I kind of wanted to touch on as well. Um, so first thing I want to say is we are not the first ones to talk about Samaritan English as a language. By no means are we. There are tons of scholars. There's even a book, as Ralph was saying, there is a book of, of Samaritan, um, Samaritan uh, tongue. There's a dictionary. There's a whole dictionary. Um, and so, you know, this is not new. The concept is not new. It's been around for years and years. But I will say, um, you know, the longer we take to actually formalize the language and, and do something with it, then the more watered down, as Steffi said, it's going to become because it's like, I feel like right now, St. Martin, I don't want to say we're in denial, but it kind of seems like we're, St. Martin is different. Like, it's just, it's just different. <laughs> Honestly, there's no other place in the world that's like St. Martin. It's just different. And I feel like we, we keep trying to fit ourselves into different types of boxes that we just can't really fit into. And until we really realize how different we are, you know, Dutch, French, English, like, I mean, the whole political system is different. Like, everything is different. And until we really embrace that difference and use it to our advantage, we're always going to be at the, the lower hand. We're always going to be at the, like... Honestly, so in the in the comments, there's a lot of things about, you know, translating laws and, um, you know, there's a lot of issues and um, there that, you know, language is always going to be an issue. And it's just like, okay, so I think, um, you know, we, we talked about this in a past conversation, like the idea of, you know, Dutch side and French side coming together and doing like one parliament, right? Like the idea of joint government um, as a means of, of, you know, recognizing how different we are and governing as one island in one language, you know, and I feel like that would be a recognition of our language and, you know, also recognizing what is our history and why don't we speak Dutch and why aren't we fluent in French, right? Because the, the quicker we can recognize why we are the way we are, the quicker we'll stop apologizing for it, you know, like this, this whole shame that goes with not being fluent in Dutch or speaking uh, French in a, in a broken accent or not in the correct way, you know, it's just like that, that there should be no shame around that because you, you don't become fluent in a language because you want to become fluent in a language. That's not how languages work, right? So schooling is supposed to teach you how to read and how to write. Schooling is not supposed to teach you how to speak, right? That happens outside of the school. And so I feel like as St. Martiners, we really are not being honest with ourselves as to why we're in the, the state that we are right now. And so if we continue saying like, yeah, we're, we don't speak Dutch fluently because we're incompetent, then we'll be, then we're gonna act as if we're incompetent, you know? And so the, <laughs> I don't know, it, it, it's frustrating. It is frustrating because we're really buying into this idea of our own incompetence. And I don't think that's it. And we are being told that we need to bend a certain way to fit into certain structures. And instead of saying like, no, like if you guys wanted us to bend that way, then when you colonized us, right, then you should have made sure we spoke your language. No, we're not saying that. We're saying, oh, yeah, we should probably learn Dutch. And yeah, we, we don't really speak it fluently, but like we're going to try and operate in the system. If you try to operate in a system where you're already at the lower hand, how are you supposed to excel, right? Like, why are we doing this to ourselves, honestly? Like, <laughs> you know, and so I, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 I feel like there's, there's a lot at hand. And I mean, like, 
yes, a lot of Samaritan, but also Samaritan, a lot of Samaritan English is being lost as well, you know, because this is, again, topic for, for another episode, but just in terms of, uh, if you think of um, the, the local population and um, what proportion of the, of the population actually has roots in Samaritan and actually is carrying on the heritage of speaking Samaritan English, it is a minority. And so um, that's, that is in no way a, a ploy for xenophobia at all. <laughs> that's not what this is, but it's just recognizing that if we don't formalize this language in a way that, that it's formal, right? If we don't do something with it, put it in the school systems, make sure, you know, like then, then it will be lost. It will be lost. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, that's my, my two cents. Well, we have a question. Oh. We have a question. Can you illustrate in your talk what Samaritan English sounds like? <laughs> yeah, so that's the other thing. We've been doing this whole episode not. <laughs> I was thinking the same. <laughs> but I was here going through this book. I was like, let me see if I could find something to read. Um, a, 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 but, but come on, know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have well. to look to, through a book to speak Samaritan English. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, not in that sense. <laughs> but like because it's such a cool book so i wanted to actually read like one of the old stories from it but it's so thick and i didn't find anything but mm. honestly i i feel like i wouldn't even know how to read samata english because the way you write it is like like i, I don't i wouldn't know how to i think pronounce most it. of us does, does write it differently yes. yeah yeah there's no institutionalization or standardization right so okay so how how how, how are you the spell are you I spell A-U-Y-U. A-Y-U. A-Y-U, yes, I agree. I see some people spell A-double-L-U. Exactly. R-L-U. But that's R-L-U. That's another island. That's not St. Martin. And that's the other thing. I feel like we kind of like like copy and like, you know, like for example, someone is getting cheated on, right? Like, how would you say that? Con. Con, right? But then in, in Jamaican Patois is bun, right? And so I kind of like both of those things being thrown back and forth on St. Martin and then it's mm -hmm. going to get to the point where it's like, okay, do we say Han or do we say bun, you know? Yeah. How do you guys spell dotin? D-O-T-I-N apostrophe. Apostrophe. I everyone spelled that at the same time. Like I didn't get anyone spelling <laughs> one at a time. No, it's the same as Ralph. So D O T I N apostrophe. Oh. I've seen D O H T I N as well. D O T T I N. D O U T T I N. How do you actually spell Saint Martin in Saint Martin English? Do you uh, say Saint Martin, Smartin, or Saint Martin? Um, it would depend on if you're from like St. Peter's or, or Grand Cas, no? <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. True. Um, I think a comment here, a final comment uh, I'm going to mention is a uh, see one from Patrice. You need to first have leaders that aren't ashamed to simply say, sorry, I don't speak Dutch or prefer to speak English without a population saying that, saying what are they doing there? Yeah. So basically, um, I think that's another part of it. Um, you know, when, you know, uh, leaders accept, willingly embrace, you know, our language besides just a ploy for campaigning to make it seem like you're really down to earth local, you know, then we can, yeah, we can, we can start bargaining 
from a different level because then you know you have that confidence and i think another thing about language speaking your mother tongue is the confidence that you have when you express yourself in that language opposed to trying to fit yourself or chisel your way into a different construct or identity yeah but that that can only come from knowledge of why you you don't speak it in the first like if you don't have that knowledge you're not going to have that confidence you know but i think it's also about like recognizing power right and like the Mm -hmm. i know that a lot of times people might mean well you know and i think everyone here like growing up here you know everyone holds certain levels of education to like a certain standard right and Mm -hmm. everyone has this i don't know i guess idea that you know um your kid has to go off to America or to the Netherlands to study and like this is the epitome of success and meaning and life and la 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 blah uh and that's great that that's great and everything I, I'm not um saying anything bad about having PhDs and whatever but it doesn't encompass all of society right and so it's just for me it's like how uh, the, the ways in which we continue to put people down through these ways, because it's like, you can see people doing amazing things sometimes, and then you're going to see someone come back and say, oh, but they don't speak perfect Dutch. You know, these are all ideas like t- completely tied to power and how we see our educational systems are giving certain people resources and others not. And I think that, I think also like what Steffi was mentioning that, you know, we see being polyglots as like this um, advantage, right? And like, we think that we can also, in mastering different languages, master different social contexts. Um, and that's great for the people that can thrive in those environments. But when I think about education, I think about how do you make everybody within your community reach their full potential, right? And sometimes for certain people, it, it does not include operating across multiple languages, right? Mm-hmm. They already have uh, you know, it's already a struggle for them to master the material. And then you're asking them to master that material in another language, you know? So it's just, we have to realize that, you know, we all have our boundaries of what we can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And when we put these things on each other, we're also trying to kind of stunt the growth that we can have. Um, and so for me, it's also like, and always having this conversation, you know, I, you tend to see like people that can master a certain environment saying that, yes, this should be a requirement, right? Um, And so it's how do we disconnect these things to make sure that we're all trying to create like a great inclusive environment where we're all lifting each other up like as much as we can, right? I think it's like uh, also like a very capitalistic idea, right? That we think that every single person, you know, like we're just born and you know what, the world is yours. Go out and conquer it, have it all. You can have it all. And that's not the truth. We're human beings in certain social conditions with certain social barriers and, you know, uh, personal barriers within ourselves. And sometimes there are obstacles that stand in our way that we might not be able to move around those, but we can do great things in other areas. Um, so it's, it's also like all this ideology, I think that we don't realize is like driving certain systems and causing us to require certain things within society amongst each other. And uh, that's one thing that, you know, with language, we have to keep asking ourselves like these hard questions. Uh, A lot of times they say, yeah, like laws are made in Dutch. Okay, so why are they made in Dutch in the first place? Who are our policy workers who are making, you know, uh, these laws? Like where are they educated and within which system? And you already see that if you have to 
go to MPC, graduate from VWO, go to Holland, master law classes there to be able to come back here to make policy for your country. That's already streamlining like who can make policy in the language that's going to be made in, you know? So Absolutely. it's all these things and processes that we have to unearth, but I think it's a lot of work. It costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of time. And we always put these things and then we just continue because we say, hey, the system has been going great the way that it's been going. We've reached somewhere. The rich are rich and everyone else is just, they keep pushing their, you know? And so why change anything? You know, like the status quo seems fine. And indeed, and my, <laughs> my final, or my final say, um, I'll try not to run off on this, is simply, I, I just realized we forgot to talk about code switching. <laughs> I think Jonathan would <laughs> love to enjoy, <laughs> mention that briefly. But also finally, uh, I guess for me, is um, even where jobs are concerned, I, I mean, Colin mentioned it, um, well, as far as policy and, and so forth, but where we see jobs being advertised, where the first language you, ha you, know, you have to be fluent in is um, sometimes Chinese, um, Hindu, or you know, some other language, and even advertising in total different language. So I think in, in some ways, um, you know, again, it's, it's just a matter of barriers that are put in place, which means it shatters so that you know, we, everyone has a, a better, chance to really achieving that so-called um well i won't say status but opportunity to progress in their society but i guess finally it, yeah we didn't speak about the code switching you know so how sometimes we would speak like uh paul Mooney used to say that the um what, what he used to call it the era like so basically <laughs> When um, black folks would try to speak properly, be like, era, basically. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like there's, there's so much we could speak about with this, you know, like code switching and, and what that even means. So a lot of us were saying like, oh, like when we're talking amongst each other, it's just be like super chill and um, you're speaking in Samantha English, speak however you want to talk. But then the minute you start speaking about something educated or something where you're talking like about some some subject then obviously switched right then all of a sudden the standardized english comes out you just start yanking as some people just say um you know and it's like it, your, your whole demeanor just changes and it's like your tongue just switches um and so for it is weird for a long time i prided myself on that i was like you know like i can i can switch like when i gotta be talking like i from Samantha, i talk like i'm from Samantha, and you know when i have to like speak as if i have a degree in economics i speak as a, you know it's like why do those two things have to be separate <laughs> you know like why um and and really getting into that whole thing because i mean like at home it was speak proper english at home right like i mean my my mom especially like she really made sure that her kids knew how to speak proper english um and i mean that's because she was trying to prepare me for the society that she knew and that i was going out into and so she's trying to make sure that i have the, the best tools at hand you know um, and so it's really deep. <laughs> it's really deep. Like this whole thing of like not seeing creolized English as a uh, substandard, like that's going to take a lot of like unconditioning in order to, to not do that. Um, yeah. And then we also talked a little bit when we were, when we were preparing for this, for this about people who can't speak uh, Samantha English, who can't switch, you know, like people who only speak standardized English and how that kind of makes you feel as if you're, you're not really a Samatana because you can't switch, you know? Um, and I thought that was interesting too. So 
it, it kind of like this idea of identity and belonging and, you know, like who can really say that they're a Samaritan or like if you're not fluent in, in Samaritan Creole and if you sound horrible speaking it, right? If you sound like banging a pan, <laughs> like stop, right? Um, then can you say you're local, right? So um, <laughs> all of these are questions that, that we were asking ourselves in preparing for this episode. And, and uh, but... added to that, if, if, you, uh, if you sound like you're banging a pot and you also don't have an identifiable last name, you should still have the rights. You should still right? have the rights. <laughs> you know, uh, Steffi, Steffi was saying that, um, you know, in cases where she, she feels like she doesn't feel like switching or she's just, you know, like she doesn't feel like code switching right now, then she can always point to her last name and be like, yo, like there's no denying this last name right here. Like, <laughs> like I from here, <laughs> like you can't take that from me, you know? Um, but but for others, you know, um, my last name is not from Samaritan, my last name is from Arnhem and it's from Bonaire. Um, uh, for, you know, it's like, you, you kind of have to play it up a little bit, you know? Um, like every time I walk into a store, like I just give like the rawest good afternoon, like ever. <laughs> So any, any like thought that I might be a tourist or not from here is just gone, right? Like, like you yeah. need to go from here because one, I don't want to be taken advantage of. Two, I don't want to be treated um, a certain way. I don't want to be exploited. You know, it's just like you're trying to establish a certain kind of rapport. Um, from the morning to the water, like you wouldn't say water. Can I have some water? <laughs> Because then the bottle of water is gonna be like five five dollars or ten dollars. So you better you better put a hard tea and you say water. Yeah. <laughs> Heavenly water, not sparkly water. GB water, please. <laughs> give me the GB water. Even more local. <laughs> please don't give me the GB water. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, but yes, I mean, all of these things tie into, you know, identity and language and establishing ourselves as a people. Um, and all of them are things that, that we need to, to talk about. Yeah, because we don't really talk about this stuff. That's so I'm glad we did that episode. Okay, so I would say that that's a, that's a wrap, folks. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, we went a bit over the old mark, but uh, we noticed that everyone was well engaged and on the Facebook chat. Um, so thank you once again for tuning in to Millie Conversation on Samaritan History, and be sure to look out for our next poster on our yeah. next topic, which may be Calypso, right? Yeah, I know you're going to say Calypso. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> next episode will be our fifth episode, so... Yes, it's supposed to be on history, no? And uh, the concept of history and all of that, I think. <laughs> we'll talk, we'll talk. To we'll be talk. determined. Welcome to the politics of the Mele co-hosts <laughs> fighting for what we should talk about. So maybe we leave it up to the radio listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I think we, we leave it up to you guys um, for our next chat on Calypso, for you guys to let us know who's your favorite Calypso artist and everything whatnot. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> or on history and like why also, our, our St. Martin history is not taught uh, in school. <laughs> yeah. Who's your favorite St. Martin historian, you know? We also have been doing interviews too. So look out for some, you yes. know, some interviews with some experts 
as well um because you know we talk about a lot of different subjects like this one here the the last topic on the border which you know that might come up again too so um yes once again thank you so much um and that is it for me thank you for tuning in to this episode of Mele. have some comments you can write to us at meleesxm at gmail.com or on facebook and instagram at meleesxm see you for our next episode of Mele, and in the meantime stay curious